Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Yo, dude, what's going on? Here we are finally, finally to talk about Akira. (laughs) But I want to hear what's going on with you, dude. You've been so freaking busy with Infinite Worlds, man. What's going on? You guys won't know this, but... Nick and I have been trying to record this episode for like a month or something like that. <laughs> like for real, we keep planning on it and then something keeps coming up. That's what he's talking about. And yeah, I've been super, super busy. I uh, decided to myself that this was the month I was going to finish the first draft of the book I've been working on. I was doing 2,000, 2,500 words a day for two or three weeks in the past month. And I also started the Infinite Horrors Kickstarter through Infinite Worlds. So I've been managing a Kickstarter and it's also, uh, I mean, this is like a bunch of little stuff, but we're also doing the first Infinite Worlds Inktober and we created a prompt list for that. And every day I got to go through and find all the responses and post them and credit everybody. And it's pretty time consuming too. Dude, that is crazy. And I got like a wedding to go to here in like a week, flying back to Atlanta for that and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. (laughs) Like literally there's a bunch of other things too. Like my nieces are getting dropped off at my apartment in a couple hours from now. So So it it just never ends. I mean, you're just caught in this whirlwind. For a guy who doesn't go to an office space or like have a real actual job, I stay, I stay pretty busy. Last time we talked, like, I don't even know what I've been, uh, I've been up to. Well, I could tell you what. Did we talk when I got staff? Because I got staff in my freaking ankle from all, all the mosquito bites. We've talked, but we haven't talked about it on the uh, podcast yet. Dude, so, yeah, dude. I, so I'm, a, I'm deathly allergic to mosquitoes. Like if I get wow. bit, they just swell up like, and they get so itchy. Dude, why would you go to Florida? I, know. <laughs> I want to go back to Southern California. So <laughs> effing bad right now. I've been dying, man. And uh, I got bit up on my feet and I just scratched them like a little kid until they were all raw. And then I trained and, right. you know, we get there's it's the number one rule that you hear with uh, with doing jujitsu is don't go on the mat if you have cuts because you could get staph. I mean, we have staph bacteria on our skin already. Right. And sure enough, man, and dude, it went down to the bone and and it's my ankle swole up. There was like an abscess there. So even stepping hurt my ankle. And so I had to go in for freaking surgery. And this lady, this surgeon, she just like dug and she even shot me up with Novocaine, dude. And when she stuck that scalpel in and started digging, I don't care how numb I was. Everything went white hot. I just felt like I was going to die. Well, because it it was like already extra sensitive, you know, because it was like, you know, infected. She's just digging it out. She goes like, we got to get this out. We got to get this out. Staff is no joke, man. Staff like kills people and it is not a joke at all, dude. I remember, I don't know how long ago this was, quite a while ago because he's passed on now, but that fighter Kevin Randleman got a staff infection on his thigh. And it was like the most brutal thing I've ever seen in my life. Do you remember that, dude? Yeah. yeah that was crazy. <laughs> that was really crazy. And a buddy of mine, another uh, fighter, uh, his name's Durkin, um, Patrick Cummings, uh, UFC oh, fighter. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. he, so he hit me when I had this. And he was like, dude, I saw you got this, man. He goes, you got to be careful. He goes, in Florida, I got it three times. Oh, my God. And he goes, and your, your head will start. You'll start fucking losing your mind. Because, and he's right. Because what happens is I'm like, dude, I started thinking I'm gonna, they're going to amputate my foot. 
if this every day I would wake up and I would go, is it worse today? Is it worse? Because oh, you're like, man. dude, if it doesn't work, they got to either go back in there and operate again. And if they can't get everything out, they got to cut it off. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh my God, I lost my tooth and now I'm going to lose my foot. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, Nick the foot from now on. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that would be so awesome. All right. When we talked about, you know, going ahead and covering Akira, I was like, okay, we both had seen the anime and I told you I would go ahead and I would read um, the the manga. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you what, I had no idea what I was in for because what he created in the freaking manga and then went ahead and did the film it's just as it's just as different as the movie and the book for dune there's so much right. that is left out and i had no idea so anyways it's kind of cool it's kind of a good segue like i said they're so they're so similar in that respect i thought we could have segued when we were talking about you losing your body parts lost his arm right i know where's my <laughs> robotic arm man no doubt all right well you want to give us a uh, a summary of the uh the anime then well, okay. Well, before all that, I just want to say full disclosure. I haven't read the manga series except for an issue here and there. I've seen them in comic stores and picked it up and read the whole issue, but I've never been in a place that had issues one through. One through a million, you mean? Yeah, one through a million, but I've never <laughs> been able to start at the beginning. So I've never pursued. I mean, I know that I could get them as a digital download yeah. and I, I thought about doing that for this as well, but I was just like, I don't. I really want to like have it in my hand. Also, I want to have it. I want to own it too. So uh, I don't, it's one of those things though, Winston, I do, I swear to you, it took so long to read the whole thing that I, I recommend that. Well, it's two, it's more than 2000 pages. Dude, I kept thinking, oh, I'm almost done because I had the, dig- I have the digital, I got them all. And dude, it just never ended. I, it's right. one of those things where it's like some odyssey where I don't even think you should start it until you're like, I'm ready to devote a month to reading this whole thing because it's almost like I was trying to get through it. I just kind of was missing things and I had to slow myself down. Well, I mean, when it's that that big and that expansive, trying to remember all of the details from something like – it's like, okay, so when we talk about Dune, we talked about Dune. And we talked about it for like a good hour or more. And we covered a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of that subject. And like you're talking about expansive universes. Yeah, it would be the same thing if we tried to go into every detail of the whole manga series that was published for like six or eight years. I think I have that written down, actually. Dude, I will say something else, too, man. After reading Akira and reading the manga and what he did, Katsuri uh, Otomo, I think it's. How you say his name? Katsuhira Otomo. Katsuhira, yeah, Otomo. 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 I'm terrible with names. Japanese is one of those. It's hard to know where to put emphasis on words. You know, sometimes. Yeah, like I and it's it's especially difficult in Japanese. I will say this: that guy is a an effing genius. There's no question. Without question. Without question. That's why I wanted to actually start. Is okay, if we're talking about Akira. We have to be talking about Katsuhiro Otomo because Otomo did all of it. He created the manga based on other influences, and we'll get into that here in a second. I've got like a good little history worked up here. And then after the manga was a success, he then directed the film and wrote the screenplay. Yeah, but dude, dude, I mean, go back to the manga. He drew 
All right. of it himself. All of it, all of it did himself. Did the lettering, did everything. The animation for the film is based on his drawings as well. You know what I mean? He had a team of yeah. animators, of course. I mean, nobody can animate a whole feature-length film by themselves. I mean, maybe in a lifetime. But he storyboarded it all himself. Yeah, yeah, all of it. All of it himself. <laughs> Let's talk about Otomo. This guy was born in the Miyagi Prefecture of Japan in 1954. That's nine years after the end of World War II. And I think when you watch Akira, when you read the manga, you get that post-war feel a lot. Akira, the actual story, is set in a post-war Japan. And not only post-war, post-frickin' nuclear bomb. Exactly. Two nuclear bombs. Right. And the same thing happened in real life. It's kind of like when we discussed Godzilla. It's this, in Japanese culture... You know, which Godzilla was came out in 1954. Otomo was born in 1954. So this lingering amorphous threat of destruction by these gigantic unstoppable forces played so heavily into the psyche of this country. I mean, it's so obvious. Godzilla was the beginning of it, and Otomo's whole career was this. Yeah, can you imagine? Like, you bring up a really good point. When I went to Chechnya, they had just, it was, you know, like 10 years after the war that they had with the Soviet Union and or Russia, and mm-hmm. um, I can tell you, it was, the landscape was devastated. There were buildings still bombed out, and it was something that, I, as I was driving around i was thinking imagine always yeah the war's over but it's the scars are right here right they're not gone and can you imagine the scars of two nuclear bombs being dropped on your country to where that's always there you're always thinking about it right in those years right after it like that yeah on top of that for japan too you know what i mean and this i I don't know the history of chechnya so I, i don't know how this might relate to that as well but on top of that, their entire national identity had been taken from them. You know, yeah. not only did they get bombed out in its post-war, they lost the war and were occupied. You know what I mean? So yeah. they weren't allowed to continue the way of life the way they had been previously. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, for better or for worse. So I think it was a big it was a big thing in the heads of these people, and it then kind of informed a lot of the art that was created in that country after it, you know, from Godzilla until now, from Godzilla till to Shin Godzilla. So, he, okay, Otomo, he was born in the 50s. He grew up in a rural part of the country. And because of that, he didn't feel like he had a lot to do. So he read manga. He just went to the, you know, when he was able to buy one, you know, his parents got him one a month and he'd always get the same magazine. It was called Shonen Magazine. And this was like a really sweet spot for this young mind to hit because the magazine at the time was serializing two of the biggest manga stories ever. The first was Astro Boy, which, you know, mm. is you know still recognizable in popular culture here, even in America today. Yeah. Which in Japan the Japan they call Mighty Adam. And that was created by a mangaka, that's a manga creator, a mangaka named Asumu Tezuka. And that manga became the first real anime. And when we say anime, not any animation created in Japan ever, but the first that has the characteristics that we now associate with anime. Okay. The enlarged eyes, the exaggerated motions, the expressions of the people changing in one shot, you know, that kind of thing. And this character, Astro Boy, was hugely influential to Japanese culture because he was the first animated TV star and it became popular outside of Japan in places as well. Astro Boy was so influential that 
after Otomo created Akira, one of his next films was Steam Boy, which, you know, obviously you have to see the similarities there. Steam Boy is more of a steampunk setting and it's different in a lot of ways. Nah. It's clear the influence. There was also another manga in Shonen Magazine called Tetsujin 28 Go. And this is about a little boy who's able to control a giant robot by remote. Oh, wow. And they have adventures. Right. Right. That's sick. What a great idea. This is the first example in science fiction, at least according to the Wikipedia article on this subject. This is really the first example in science fiction of a human controlling a giant robot via remote control. And it came out in like the 50s. So previous to that, people can't find an example of that. Yeah. What is now a trope. A trope. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that was created by a creator named Mitsuteru Yokoyama. I just want to make sure I get everybody's names in here and credit them. (laughs) Otomo saw these mangas in his magazine and basically spent his real young part of his life just copying them. And then his parents saw that he was interested in drawing. So they bought him a book called How to Draw Manga by Shitaro Ishinomori. And that is when he started taking drawing seriously. And he just started improving and improving. And by the time he was in high school, he was so good that one of his friends introduced him to a publisher that he knew from Tokyo. The publisher looked through Otomo's stuff while he was visiting and said, hey, listen, if you're ever in Tokyo, let me know and I'll give you a job. And because of that, Otomo graduated high school and then moved immediately to Tokyo and became a professional mangaka from then on. Like never stopped after that. Never had another job, never did anything but drawing. Wow. And I guess directing movies, of course. So he was basically doing, you know, one spots here through the 70s. He graduated in like 73 or 74 and moved to Tokyo and was just doing jobs of that nature for the remainder of his uh, early 20s, basically through his 20s. And then he started also at this point, actually, let me skip back a little bit. Before he moved to Japan, another thing that I I think is important to note is that while he was in high school, he started taking three-hour train rides to a cinema so that he can watch movies, you know, an hour and a half both directions. Yeah, I heard that that he was really, really influenced by film and, and, and it wanted to get into directing very early. Right. And uh, he just didn't have any of the opportunities to direct. He didn't have the money necessarily to buy film equipment and that kind of thing. Yeah. Drawing is a very inexpensive hobby. And I know I'm going to hear back from artists that are going to laugh in my face. (laughs) But compared to filmmaking, I mean, I'm sorry, y'all. It's the truth. Drawings can be done with graphite and paper. Of course, there are many, many, many ways in which- Well, I mean, especially, you know, you got to realize then, I mean, you had to, now we've got digital, we got it on our phones. You could film a- Sure. You could film a movie on your phone now, but the reality was then- Right. Lenses, you know, cameras, the film stock, then getting it developed. I mean, none of that's cheap. Yeah, editing equipment. Yeah, editing, can you imagine? Editing Sound. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And that's not really attainable for most people who don't have money. No, not then either, you know, especially. One of the things I also want to point out about him going to see the movies is that he loved American movies, was heavily influenced by American movies. He went and saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, which we talked about, and was very influenced by that. And like regular gangster movies, he liked Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, understand that he liked Easy Rider a lot. Wow. Easy Rider. I can, yeah. you know, you can see like the noir influences obviously in Akira and I'm sure, you know, even Blade Runner, I'm sure had a, had part of that, uh, that influence. Well, we're going to get to that when we get to Akira proper, but yes, I definitely agree with that. Then his first big breakthrough came in 1981. He serialized 
a manga called Domu, A Child's Dream. And I got a chance to read some of this and I found some of it online. And it is wow. pretty awesome. And this is about an old man and a little girl that live in the same apartment complex that both discover that they have telekinetic powers and basically go to war with each other. Oh, wow. You can see the seeds of Akira in that, right? I absolutely see the seeds of Akira in it. I mean, there's no question. I wonder where he got that trope. Like, I wonder where that he became, you know, really into that. Were there early movies or was it something maybe Stephen King? It's Well, it definitely around the time that Carrie and Firestarter exactly. were around. So, I mean, it's very possible that he read those books. Like telekinetic powers were, you know, starting to, like, they're not telekinetic, but uh, like psychic powers in the dead zone. Oh, yeah. You know, and there's definitely some other non-Stephen King examples as well. Well, Firestarter is 1980. Okay, so yeah. And Firestarter seems like that is one of the most influential books ever you know especially for now when you look at like stranger things and all of that i couldn't agree with you more man listen it's so funny because i often find myself when i'm writing my stuff i'll often be like oh yeah that that part kind of i think i just kind of got influenced by firestarter again like that happens to me all the time actually (laughs) oh my gosh that is such a good book. Yeah, so that was 1980. So I can see that being a uh, an influence on him. Yeah, Domu came out. It started in 1980 as well. So you know, you know, because think about it. I mean, let's just Firestarter is a little girl, a, a government scientific experiment. She gets on her parents. She ends up getting the pyrokinetic or telekinetic, whatever you want to call it, powers, and it kind of goes from there. Right. But definitely one of the most influential, especially because you have that government right. thing where the government forces want to control her. Hence Akira. You know what I mean? And yeah. you could definitely see And Stranger Things. And Stranger Things, of course. Okay, so this was a big hit, this Domu a Child's Dream thing. It won him a bunch of prizes in Japan and gave him a lot of notoriety because at this point manga was becoming like I mean it had already been pretty mainstream, but it was coming more mainstream in Japan. Gotcha. It, it was the first manga to win like their top literary prize there. Oh, okay. So then the publishers were like, okay, please make stuff for us. Please make stuff for us. So he ended up working with a magazine called Young Magazine. And in 1982, he started producing Akira. And it was December of 1982. Now, I love pointing this out because you know what else came out in 1982? Blade Blade Runner. Runner. Yep. And it came out earlier that year. And if you can't see the LA of 2019 in the Neo-Tokyo also of 2019, then I don't think you're looking that hard. No, it's so, yeah, it's so It's it's just so weird that they have such similar environment. It's not weird. I mean, it's the the reason is obvious. You know, Otomo saw Blade Runner and plenty of other things before Blade Runner. Let's not, you know, get it twisted. Lots of other things influenced it too. But saw Blade Runner was like, yes, that's what the future world will look like, like that. And, you know, if you ask me who invented cyberpunk, I'm going to answer Ridley Scott. Yeah. And he did so basing it on the works of Philip K. Dick because Blade Runner precedes pretty much any other work that you would call cyberpunk, really, you know, to my knowledge. Yeah. Neuromancer. I mean, Neuromancer as far as, but that's 1984. Right. That's a couple of years later. Exactly. And Neuromancer was already in the works when Blade Runner came out. So I'm not, and no, I'm definitely not trying to say that William Gibson stole his whole vibe or anything either. You know, everybody's influenced by everybody. I think that's just, oh, gosh, that's just how it yeah. works. So anyway, they come to him and he starts making Akira and it's an enormous success 
immediately. And people are like, what the hell, dude? This is crazy. This is some really heady, trippy shit. And then this is a good time to talk some about the actual books. You've been reading them lately. Tell me what your thoughts. Before we go into the books, why don't you give us just kind of a real quick. The primer. of Yeah, give us the plot. Go over the plot points of the anime. I'll get to how it was produced and then I'll do the plot points. We'll do it in that order. Okay, so after that happened and this thing started happening, the film industry basically came to him and was like, look. We want you to make this into a movie. And he was like, I don't know. He's like, I I don't know if I'm ready for that yet, that kind of thing. And then they just wrote him a blank check, basically. Or it was like an epic amount of money. And he's like, okay. Yeah. You know what? I Okay. More than it had ever been given for any kind of an anime right. in, in Japanese Japanese anime. So yeah. this was a big deal. Yeah, a big deal. And it took them a long time to make. He had a team of 70-something animators. And they worked basically around the clock in shifts. It took a really long time to make. And it was... Dude, animation, you got to realize that animation at that point... Um, I used to work in animation. It they had to draw every single freaking right. cell, yeah, every single frame. And this was Akira. The anime was different in the sense that they were going to go. You know, standard movies are shot twenty four frames per second, right. and that's what gives them that smooth. Most animation at that point was not done that way. Right. I think I think Disney did, but all the other ones would shortcut things and go like twelve frames. Because even, think about even it. Studio Ghibli, which would, which was around at this time already, didn't do the things that way. Didn't draw twenty four frames. Yeah, be, and why? Because if you can go twelve frames per second in in many or most of your scenes, then you cut half the workload. Right, but it doesn't flow. It doesn't flow as well. Right. And he was so detail oriented when you go back and you watch that it's like you really have to like look at all the details he's not there are so many shortcuts in animation that you can right. use like just using a static background again and again and changing you know foreground elements like the characters talking but keep not having to draw the background again and i think that they were like we're going to draw every cell again you know what i mean and it really shows but that's why it was so intensive on the work Okay, so that this film came out 33 years ago now. Came out in 1988, and to this day, it is still a complete spectacle to watch this movie. You know, I just recently watched it again in preparation for the, it was almost a month ago now because I was like, well, I've already seen it a dozen times probably. And I'll tell you, the first time I saw it, okay, so in the early in the 1990s, it wasn't so easy to get this kind of stuff on video. You know what I mean? You couldn't go to Blockbuster and rent a Kira. And, you know, you might be able to get like a local video store, you know, that's like more eclectic that has it, but, you know, it wasn't easy to come by. But luckily in the 90s, networks started experimenting with broadcasting anime. In 1995, I think it was, I'd have been 12, they broadcast, I think the Sci-Fi Channel broadcast an anime called Twilight of the Cockroaches and Robot Carnival, which Otomo did some work on, I believe, and Vampire Hunter D. And those movies, they were shown like at midnight on Saturday night or something like that. And I'd stayed up just to watch them. And uh, the truth is, is that I'm not a huge anime person. I'm really not. I've seen quite a few anime movies. There's no question about it. But that's mostly a product of me just liking movies. Like, I just love movies, so I want to watch all the movies. And that includes anime. But I'm not watching every new anime that comes out. If you look at my recommended watch list or whatever, there's probably not even going to be any anime on it. Because I just typically 
watch traditional film for the most part. I watch a lot of anime. I always have, but it's hard to keep up. I mean, there's so many. That's one of the reasons it's, it's very like, like, okay. So one of my nieces that come coming over here, she's a teen and she like grew up with anime as a culture and she like draws like manga herself and just, you know, Oh wow! and like, that's like her thing. You know what I mean? She's going to Japan. Like her first ever big trip is she's going to Japan next year. And I listen, I love Japanese culture. I've read quite a bit about, you know, feudal Japan and uh, it's really fascinating to me and the history of Jap- Japanese war and all that. I, I think it's really fascinating and their culture is really wild, but my interest basically ends with more of like a fascination and not like a style, I guess, or like incorporating it into my own style too much. But that's not my niece, man. My niece is like full on Japanophile. That's so rad. It's so rad to see see kids just becoming engrossed in a different culture. Yeah, like absolutely. That. I fully support it. My, my point of that is that she'll start talking to me about her favorite animes and I won't recognize a single word she says. You know what I mean? She'll like name like 10 shows and I will be like, I literally did not follow any of that because they're all Japanese words and I don't know any of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> I tell you what, man, I watched and I recommend this for anybody, everyone. Um, I watched it about a month ago also. But before I did, I went back and I watched a few YouTube videos that were like one of them was called The Impact of Akira, the film that changed everything. Mm-hmm. And then another one was just like a storyline analysis and explanation. And dude, there was so much packed into the movie and i'd probably seen it like six or seven times maybe 10 before this but when i watched those videos kind of explaining things i I watched it with all new eyes and i again like you i was like i cannot believe that this was made in the 80s right and it is that freaking good. It is still one of the best, probably the best anime I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Outside of like Spirited Away, you know. Okay, so I love the Miyazaki movies. I love them to death. Uh, like I'm a, I'm a big Miyazaki fan. And there are a number. I like uh, Ghost in the Shell is a fantastic anime. All the ones I mentioned earlier yeah. are really good. But to your point, those movies that I was just mentioning, Vampire Hunter D and Robot Carnival, they all I saw them in like 1995, I think. And then in 1998 – just before my 15th birthday, when I was 14, one of those channels broadcast Akira. And, you know, I had seen those other movies and I had definitely been influenced by them and thought, you know, anime's cool. You know, I like this stuff. But then a couple years later, I saw Akira and they like did all these teaser trailers for when they were going to play it and all that. And then finally I watched it. And the movie that changed everything is literally the way to put it. There's no other way to put it. It made those other movies that I had seen look half done. Even though I had been mesmerized by those movies when I had seen them, I was like, wow, this is the next level. Oh, yeah. And I agree. It really, I don't think it's been matched. I recommend another really cool anime, sort of anime, because it's. I think it's got some American producers. There's a really great movie out there called Tekken Concrete, and that's got a lot of the same, like, I think – where the game gets stepped up a little because they incorporate a few different other uh, animation methods into it as well. And it's got like a kind of a similar vibe to Akira as well. So I recommend that one if you haven't seen it. Okay. Like you said, let's break down the plot of Akira to a, try to break it down to a simple form. Yeah. Basically what happened is this. Japan is destroyed in some sort of nuclear disaster. Some say war. Some say it was because a child god named Akira had destroyed the city and was going to come back. So this is 30 years later. Tokyo has been rebuilt. It's now Neo-Tokyo, and it's kind of like set near the ruins of Old Town Tokyo. And in this 
environment. Everything's basically on the brink of chaos. There are tons of protesters because there are unfair taxes being levied on the citizens and uh, unemployment is really bad. So there are a bunch of protesters clashing with the police. Meanwhile, there are also anti-government, I guess you'd call them militias or uh, operatives working to sow seeds of unrest. Meanwhile, there are all of these biker gangs fighting on the streets. The main point of Akira is about one of these biker gangs. And basically, as they're about just doing their regular biker gang, you know, beating the shit out of each other stuff, they encounter a child that has escaped from a secret government laboratory. And when that happens, one of the bikers gets such a heavy dose of the whatever telekinetic energy this escaped lab child has that it awakens the energy within this child, the, the mis- member of the biker gang, basically the runt of their litter, the weakest of the biker gang, who's always kind of been pushed around by everybody else in the gang. So the government kidnaps this kid and takes him back to their facility. While he's in this facility, they agree that they could do some tests on him as well. The government officials, the military guys, the colonel in the movie, basically is like, yeah, do, do experiments on him. While they're doing experiments on him, he's basically losing his mind. He's, he's going crazy. The other children are kind of entering his thoughts through telekinesis or telepathy, I guess, basically causing all of reality to become a mixed up and surreal. And he can't tell what's going on and it's driving him crazy. So while that's happening, the power that's been unleashed, his telekinetic power grows way off the charts, like beyond off the charts. And people start being like, oh, this is how Akira was. Like This has got Akira vibes. And it's revealed that Akira really was an actual child that really did live and really did have telekinetic powers and in all likelihood was responsible for the destruction of Tokyo. Yeah, that nuclear explosion was Akira. Right. And that's, I mean, he unleashed it. And the anime, they don't explicitly say that, I don't think. Mm. They just imply it. You know, the, the movie opens with Tokyo being destroyed by a giant blast. That's how the movie starts. That's right. It doesn't quite definite say that it was Akira that did it, but it's heavily implied. Okay, so the child that's affected, the teenage biker gang member that's affected, his name is Tetsuo. He uh, escapes this facility, kills a bunch of people, and then just goes on a, I guess, like a searching for vengeance sort of... Just a rampage. He's so angry. Rampage. Right? He's angry. Because he's been bullied his whole life. He's been kidnapped by the government and they're doing experiments on him. They're invading his mind. And even an important detail is that the leader of the gang, Kaneda, right? Right. Is really, I wouldn't necessarily say that he bullied Tetsuo, but he was the leader and Tetsuo wasn't. And there's this underlying subtextual, but even right out there that he is jealous of uh, Kaneda and resents the fact that he was always an underlying. Well, it all, it centers around... Kaneda's badass motorcycle. Yes, that's right. Kaneda's the leader of their gang, and he has like this super tricked out, customized bike. And one of the first scenes when you see them interact is Tetsuo is checking out Kaneda's bike and sitting on it and being like, oh, this is so cool. What is all this stuff? And Kaneda is basically like, get away from that. You wouldn't be able to handle that. That's, you know, you you child. Very dismissive of him. He's extremely dismissive of him. And you do start to see the undercurrent of that. And Kaneda is really the main character in this movie. The story is really about Kaneda and how he reacts to all of this stuff happening to all the people around him. And even though he's kind of a bully and kind of an asshole, he wants to save Tetsuo more than anything. Yeah. 
Like that's his main objective is to try to figure out what happened to Tetsuo and to save him. He kind of treats him like the way somebody would their little brother, maybe. Yeah, and and Tetsuo is he resents it. He resents. He's it. like, I want to be the guy with the girl, and I want right. to be the guy with the who leads the gang, and I want to be the guy who has the cool motorcycle. Right. Exactly. You know, in real life, he doesn't have that, but. After he um, escapes, he's got all these telekinetic powers and he starts unleashing them and just killing thousands of people. Yeah. Just absolutely like turns into basically a kaiju and starts just wreaking havoc. Then he starts losing control of his power and it starts ripping his body apart. And keep in mind, just to, to, to reference, the movie also starts with the bike gang where one of the three kids, they're called espers, the psychic kids like causes the wreck that right. Tetsuo gets in a wreck with him and right. their proximity to each other. And that explosion is, or not explosion, but the, the crash is what triggers. They think, right. am, am I right about that? That that triggers Tetsuo's power. Okay. So Tetsuo is about to wreck his bike into one of the espers. And right before it happened, who escapes the government facility, right? He's escaped the government facility before Tetsuo is taken there. And when he does that, the Esper throws up this psychic shield, basically. And Tetsuo crashes into this psychic shield going full speed on his motorcycle. And there is, there's a giant explosion. But when all of the debris clears, Tetsuo's unharmed. They're not, he's unconscious, but he's not physically harmed. Yeah. And it's kind of implied, they don't, they're, again, it's kind of, implicit that encountering that psychic field at that rate of speed somehow merged him with it in some way. Yes. And it triggered in him or gave to him, because you're right, it is implied, this psychic power that all of a sudden in him just starts to, you know, they, so the government sees that they bring him back to the lab. They're like, we're going to do tests on him. It looks like he might have psychic powers now too. How did he survive that blast? And, and what's cool about the espers is it's so rad from a visual standpoint is they're little kids, but they're wrinkled and they look all old right, right and right. sickly. It's such a dope visual. I've wondered about that a lot because I don't explain that in the film either. And I think it's because that they are subject to government experimentation too. You know what I mean? And that, that somehow drains their life force. But there's this other telekinetic force keeping them going because one of the kids doesn't walk like uh, floats around in like a floating ball. Like, yeah, like floating chair. So you get the idea that their bodies are paying the price for their mental powers, even though they're children. Yeah, I think they freaking stole and borrowed that floating ball thing in Mandalorian. Isn't that what the little yeah. uh, Yoda <laughs> thing was, was floating around in, right? Yeah, Yoda's an esper. That explains a lot. He does have telekinetic powers. Right. And George Lucas, I think, was a huge fan of A Cure, so it would it would kind of make sense. Okay, so this movie was not a gigantic box office success, and one of the reasons is because movies aren't really gigantic box office successes in Japan because the Japanese movie box office numbers aren't generally that great. You know what I mean? A, a movie that does equally well in America will do quite a bit better than a movie that does well in Japan, like box office numbers wise, like as far yeah. as like figures. And, you know, this is a heavily Japanese movie. It's so much related to Japanese culture so much. And, you know, obviously based on all of these Western influences, of course, but one of the reasons that I was so breathless when watching this movie as a 14 year old was how much it made me feel like I could understand Japanese culture better. By watching this, yeah. this yeah. bizarre, surreal, ultra dense 
psychic wig out somehow made me feel closer to Japanese culture. And I still feel that way. I don't think that's changed. Uh, That's so cool. I can't really put that exactly into words, except we have been putting it into words for the past however long we've been recording this episode, uh, 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But you you really, when you think about all this, you really have to think one guy, and that's Katsuhiro Otomo. Like he is so solely responsible for this film and the manga on on which it's based. Dude, that dude is a psychopath. How anybody can do what he did at a time, you know, kind of put yourself, I, I'm, I'm, the only thing I wish different for me in regards to Akira is I wish I had seen this like on a VHS tape back uh. in like, you know, when it was released, that would have been so, I can't even imagine how mind blowing that must have been because, you know, when I did see it in the mid nineties, I was still blown away. I was like, I don't even know what I just watched. Right. That was so incredible. And I think this film is a little bit divisive for that reason, because it is so dense and surreal and honestly implicit a lot. And it also doesn't have a ton of closure either. Yeah. And I think that turns people off because they're like, what, what is this? And you do kind of have to surrender to the idea that you're not going to totally understand it. A hundred percent. I know. Kind of like David Lynch's Dune. Exactly. Or David Lynch in general. Yeah. And I'm a big David Lynch fan. I'm a huge David Lynch fan. I just watched, uh, we talked about this pretty recently, but uh, we just rewatched Twin Peaks again. So I don't need closure in movies. You know what I mean? I like no. I like movies and stories where at the end I'm like, huh, I have to think about that. that. Yeah, I have to right? think about that. And this is definitely one of those movies, 100%. I thought of something just now that I wanted to say. The manga is entirely Otomo. I mean, he's 100% of that. You know, everything. Yeah. The film is 90% Otomo because at least 10% of the credit of this movie goes to Shoji Yamashiro, who did the music. Ah. And the music in this movie is so different. It's so primal. Like just drum beats and yeah. And chants and wood blocks and thumping drums and the crescendoing to create this crazy wild tension. And it's really a strange score, but it's super effective in the movie. So I do definitely have to give a shout out to... uh, Yamashiro, because that is the, the score for this movie is really unique and really cool. It's wild. And really, that's what I mean. This dude is, you know, he, Otomo is, as the director, I mean, these were his, you know, that's his call. I mean, he finds somebody who's like, listen, do this, let's see. But he could have just as easily went like the heavy metal route, right. you yeah, know, sure. the, 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 the film and just got a bunch of heavy metal bands or whatever it is, you know. But you're right, by doing it that way, it's timeless. Right. You're just always like, what in the world is going through this guy's head? It's one of the things that you, when you watch the movie again, that I really, it struck me because I was like, man, the music in this movie is really weird and it almost feels like it's trying to hypnotize you or something. It kind of reminds me of that scene. It kind of reminds me of that scene in The Wolf of Wall Street where Matthew McConaughey is like chanting and beating (laughs) his chest. That was so great. Um, But but it's like that. It's some sort of weird primal, uh, I don't don't even know how to describe it, man. It's- I know. It's very cool. Very cool. Definitely something on the rewatch that- uh, 
that you should take it take like like on on rewatching it i encourage people like look at how how detailed all of the animation is look at how smooth it is and listen to the music it's freaking incredible yeah. man and just you know we've talked about it already and how many animation cells there were and you know how many frames and all that and i still don't think because this is like a audio medium that we're on right now if you haven't seen akira like with your own eyes what all these things we're saying can't do it justice or make you understand what it's like to see the blur lines of the motorcycle in animation from the 80s you know what i mean like the way tetsuo's body explodes into a weird biomechanical mass describing it or even seeing a still from it really just can't give you the full weight of understanding of what it looks like when you watch it oh yeah i have to just emphasize how incredibly just the animation all by itself is and the story okay so i will say this we've been giving this movie just high and everything real high praise and i will say there's one thing i think several times during the movie the dialogue is kind of cringy dude there's one i have a critique too okay so and i and I agree. One of the things that I really have a problem with when I rewatch the movie is how shrill everyone is. <laughs> like they're always just like everybody's screaming at yeah, each other. There's a lot of screaming. The there's a lot of screaming. <laughs> like even you're like, pass the sugar. No, I don't want, you know, it's just like no matter what happens, they're screaming, you know, so, uh, so shrill. That's got to do with voice acting too. You know what I mean? So I don't know if you were watching the dubbed version or the subtitled version. Yeah, I've watched both too. I've watched both tons of times. And I actually think the American voice actors do an okay job. I always prefer to watch subtitled films. You know, if I can, I typically do. Uh, but you don't always get a I choice. Got, I get yelled at recently by my daughter for watching Squid Game with American dub. Oh. She's like, you're not getting any of the emotion. How can you do that? You got to watch it subtitled. And I'm like, well, I watched the English dub with subtitles on. Isn't that count? She's like, no. <laughs> well, I also finished Squid Game recently. And, you know, it's the most popular Netflix produced show yet. Ever. 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 And I got to say, I get it. You know, I, I, I understand it's a cool show, you know, what, what do you want? It's, it's very compelling. It kept me and my wife on the edge of my seat through nine episodes. Good, good job. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was, I was, I was not happy with the ending, but uh, well, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a bummer of an ending. Oh, I just didn't think his motivation of leaving, forgetting his daughter to go back into the game. Spoiler alert. Yeah. I just was like, you were what? unconvinced, unconvinced. Well, you, you, I was just like, no, what do you do? You not care about your daughter? You haven't even seen her yet. Right. Right. Yeah, but other than that, I like the old man and all that. Anyways, that's, that's really good. That's really the plot tie in that I was talking about. But, uh, uh oh, no, I like that. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Uh, I was just talking about the very, very, end. right, right. I get that makes sense now. Yeah. yeah that is a little, yeah. yeah. But, you know, having spent a year in Korea, I, I, I got like a special place in my heart for Korean film too you know what i mean oh we're gonna have to talk about squid game then at some point maybe in the next podcast we'll go in a little more depth we could do like a squid game slash battle royale slash yeah that would be let's do that because you know what i have questions for you what do you call i think you call it like survival thriller or something like that yeah i mean that is hunger games too yeah yeah, hunger games and there's a whole there's a whole that's a whole genre and you know that's there's that goes back. That goes way back. There's some Philip K. Dick on okay, that. Okay, well, let's talk about those too. three. Those three. I think one more thing we should talk about is 
what Akira has influenced. Well, hold on. Hold on. I'm going to go. I, we got to go into the manga. And so and then we'll talk about the influences. But let me let me tell you that, you know, it follows the movie and all of a sudden it just breaks out into this other story that is so incredible that I, I I tell you what, it's so detailed, it's so incredible that I couldn't even imagine anybody directing this um, but Otomo because the the things that he had to cut, like if you were the writer and then some director came along and just chopped up your story like that, I, I, I don't even know how how emotionally he was able to do it because he cut out so much and and I'll just kind of go through the basics of what he cut out. So okay. what happened in in the book is Tetsuo goes in search of just like in the anime, he goes in search of Akira, right? right. In the movie he discover he learns that Akira is buried under this Olympic stadium, his parts. That's right. In Same like a thing. secret vault, secret vault, yeah. And there, I think that in the anime, if I'm right, he we find Akira like in different bottles. Right? Yeah, he's different like, he, yeah, he's broken into pieces. I, I, I assume he's that's dead because, and broken into pieces, right. right? But I assume that's because they felt like they had to separate him into different pieces so that you know he couldn't be as powerful, I guess, or couldn't come back or whatever. Right. Yeah, something like that. I didn't, I didn't really get why that happened. They didn't explain that in the book. He goes and he. Akira comes back alive. Okay. Akira is alive. Tetsuo hooks up with him and they start a freaking like a new cult, right? And so everybody is worshiping freaking in, in, in the anime, people start thinking, right, that Tetsuo is Akira, right? Mm. And in the book, it's actually Akira and they've got, he's got him like on, on a throne and he's a really quiet kid. And so, you know, there's this new group that starts around them. Now you have the government faction, right? right. The government that is trying to get them everything under control. You've got this new group that is worshiping Akira, right? And then you've got a character that I think for me was the best character of of all of Akira that isn't even in the anime. And that is Lady Miyako. And she is a cult leader. She's actually in the book. I mean, in the anime. Yeah, you just barely see her. Yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. You see her for one, like one frame or two frame when Tetsuo like explodes that bridge. And I think she's even a man in in that. Um, Or just, I I think just animated as being very manly but i do think it's still yes yeah i think it is still lady miyako in the yeah but you do see that character very briefly yes very briefly but anyway she runs her own cult she is number 19 so the, all the espers they have the numbers on right. their palms right right and most of the espers were killed during the first explosion that went off and it's not implied akira in the book created the explosion that destroyed and killed, and killed yeah like several of the other espers yeah and so the the middle part like i would say 40 50 percent of all of the the books are all about this like this drama of akira versus lady miyako's group 
versus the government forces. And there's this massive civil war that's going on. And the espers are separated and they're trying to get them back together. But her role is so freaking cool. And, and the more I read about it, I was like, man, I can't even imagine being a Tomo and having this amazing character and just having to say, you know what? You're not even in it. I, yeah, I, I, I can't even fit you in here. And, you know, the movie isn't short either. You know what I mean? No. Like, it's not like a short movie. It's no. like it's two plus hours. And, you know, the amount of effort to put in creating that length of a movie hand drawn took five or six years to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, to cut her out and her again, I was, it, it blew my mind as I was reading it. Cause I'm like, wait a minute. At first I thought she was going to be in it like a volume or two, dude, she's like half of the freaking book and half of the story. And her character is rad, man. I really, I, I'm so like enamored with cults. Right. And so like her cult and then another cult rising around Akira. You're going to love the book. I just finished. It's got tons of cult stuff in it. Oh, really? Yeah, there's some good cult stuff. And it's a lady cult leader too. So what what are the chances? I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And then what happens in the book also is then Akira creates a second explosion. And then it kind of goes back into, I don't want to give it all away, especially because we're already over an hour. But the, the, then what happens is then we go back to the anime and we've got that final battle with Tetsuo. But, you know, the, between Lady Miyako being in the, the film and Akira being in the film, because remember, Akira's really not in the freaking film. It's just a right. uh, in the anime. Yeah, Akira, so Akira the- you only hear Akira speak at the very end of the film and only, yeah. only see Akira as like a glowing – actually, he's – Glowing. Almost like ghost-like. He's right? like ghost-like, and then like he does appear as a physical being for like a few seconds at the end of the movie, and you hear his, him talking. But it's yeah, very much yeah, like so, it could it could very well be in a dream. You know what I mean? It's extremely surreal. So so yeah, so Tetsuo he sets up what's called the Great Tokyo Empire. That's the name of his like cult, and Akira is the figurehead emperor who sits on this throne. And uh, it's dude, it's just so freaking different. And I really, I think it's not something that I would tell everyone to go out and read like immediately. But if you really like Akira at some point, it's like one of those, what was it? David Foster Wallace, uh, the writer wrote infinite jest. Mm -hmm. And that's a book I tell people, you know what? You should read it once (laughs) it's very hard to read, but it's something that's really cool. You know, and Ulysses, another novel that's like that where it's like, man, these books are, they're so in engulfing that it's kind of like a, a, you should read them before you die. Right. You know, kind of Moby Dick and Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that was kind of my experience with Akira, dude. I thought I was getting into this thing and it was like, oh, cool. I'll read this friggin' Dude, it just became engrossing to where every day I'm just like, man, am I ever going to get through this thing? (laughs) You know, it's like, this is insane. How long this is. Now you know a shitload about Akira. So, you know, it, it, that, that I'm sure will prove really popular at like parties and stuff when you're like, <laughs> oh, I'm sure everybody will love my dinner conversation about a care. Dude, dude, you can just throw in dude stuff. So you don't have, hey, dude, you, dude, listen though, 
don't worry about it making it dinner conversation. It's here recorded for posterity from now on. That's right. You know what I mean? Right. So it, we don't, it, even if <laughs> your dinner guests aren't this. interested, the people who are interested will just look us up. Well, and they can also just play this in the background of their own dinner party. Exactly. Right? Yeah, even better. Dude, you guys, you don't even have to have conversations. Just put on the Infinite Worlds podcast and everybody just be silent and listen to us while you're eating dinner. <laughs> that is a party right there. I mean, even, even if you're if you're even able to eat dinner, because I know you'll be so engrossed by the things that we're saying. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. You know, as you, there are so many characters that I'm not talking about, you know, that are involved. There's this colonel who wants to get a cure. Right, and right, there's right. this Nezu is another guy and he tries to kill, you know, it's it's so it's all these like Otomo just I can't even imagine that this Akira had to be between the books and the movie he must have spent a decade of his life completely engrossed in this fantasy world that he had created uh, you think, which thinking is about only that and drawing only that yeah you know, okay so I wanted to point out real quick that you you say that the all this other stuff happens in the manga that doesn't happen in the anime. And one of the reasons that is, is because the film went into development in 1983 and was released in 1988. So during that five years, the film was being developed. But the manga started in 82 and ran until 1990. So wow. while producing this movie, he was also producing the manga that had way more story. Wow. Yeah. So like they overlap. That's madness. They overlapped for like half a decade. So the reason that there's so much more to the manga is because the story continued even after the movie was released. You know what I mean? And it's not, it wasn't like a weekly thing. It wasn't like you, you can consistently count on there being a new Akira in Young Magazine every single time. But, you know, it was periodically coming out. Wow. That's insane. Okay, so last thing I want to talk about is just like how influential, why do we do an episode on Akira, some movie that came out 33 years ago that, you know, was not even really a big box office hit? Okay, I can answer that question. It's because it influenced the shit out of popular culture. Big time. You mentioned Stranger Things already. Eleven is a numbered. Yeah. I mean, she's called Eleven. Just, I mean, she is an Esper. Yeah, she's an Esper for sure. Without question. She's got the number. She's got the government agents pursuing her. She can like kill people with her brain. She escapes, right? A government facility just like the Espers in that started Kira. Yeah, just like Firestarter. You know, like we say, it's turtles on turtles, man. Yeah. Okay. In the film Looper, there's a character that has psychic powers that loses control of them. A little kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. The film Chronicle, if you've ever seen that, about the kids who basically get superpowers and then end up fighting against each other. If you haven't seen that one, that's a really cool, that's one of the cooler found footage movies I've ever seen. You know, it's not like perfect or anything, but worth a watch. There was a, there was another movie that came, that just came out that had that same, um, that had the exact same oh, theme. And Midnight, it was Midnight, Midnight, Midnight Special. Special. Yes, Midnight Special, yeah. which I quite like. Uh, and uh, that director's previous non-sci-fi movie, Take Shelter, is also awesome uh but yeah Midnight- oh, that was really moody yeah that was cool <laughs> yeah totally uh, di- totally different vibe than what we're talking about here but yeah midnight special another a great example that it's more or less the same thing midnight special is basically Firestarter. yeah no doubt 
Even even that Superman, um, kind of in the same vein, that Superman movie that came out, the uh, Brightburn. Oh yeah, was kind of the same thing. A little kid with way too much power, you know. Which was which I enjoyed that movie. I thought I thought Brightburn was really dope, man. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. It's cool. It's been recommended to me several times. Yeah. One other thing, and I just know that if we're talking about this, people are going to want us to talk about this. Is the bike slide shot? From Akira. Okay. There's a shot near the beginning of the movie where they're in their biker fight and Kaneda slides his bike to a stop. And it is one of the most storied and mimicked and referenced shots, not only in anime, but in film history to the point where it's been almost exactly replicated in Batman, the animated series, several other animes, Ninja Turtles, Star Wars, Clone Wars, Advent Children, I'm just looking at a list right now of... Of that one particular shot. I didn't know that. I know which one you're talking about. X-Men Origins Wolverine. Like when he's laying it down. Yeah, he basically almost lays it down. He almost lays it down and slides just before laying it down. He rests Adventure Time references, The Simpsons, over and over again. So I just thought that pointing that out and showing the little subtle nods to things like that is important. Yeah. And just just showing how influential it is. I think. No, it's so rad. It's so cool. I think that's all I got on this one, man. But big fan of this one. I own a vest that has the, like my battle vest has a good for health, bad for education patch on it, like Kaneda's jacket in the movie. Yeah. So I wear that as like a badge of honor for sure. It's so rad. You know what? One more thing that you want to talk about a big influence on. One of my favorite novels, uh, Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Uh-huh. I haven't read it. So the character, oh, dude, you, if you're a geek out there, you have to read this book. It's about the main character, Oscar. He's from the Dominican Republic and he is a, he lives in the United States now and he's, he's obese and he's a freaking geek for everything. And his number one thing that he's a geek for is a care. Ah. And he gets bullied his whole life. And it's all about, it's cool because it's all about the dictator there who just really oppressed and tortured people and how a lot of people came to the United States. But anyways, he's a geek for Akira. It's referenced over and over and over again. So yeah, really, really cool. Well, you know what? I can relate, you know, not about being from the Dominican Republic, but you know, the nerding out on the movie over and over again. So trust (sighs) me. So. So rad, so rad. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, You can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram, at Nick the Tooth, and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker, and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 